0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, how have you been this past week or so? I'm sorry that I'm so late in getting this podcast out, but uh, to tell the truth, I just haven't been able to muster the energy to get it finished before now. Hopefully you aren't having a period of the blahs, too, and uh, I should let you know that it may be about 10 days before I get the next one posted due to a little trip I'm planning on taking. But not to worry. In a couple weeks, we'll be back on the regular weekly schedule. Also, uh, in case you were one of the people affected last week when our site was down for a few hours, I'm very sorry for that, but uh, hopefully we've fixed the problem and improved our service as well. What happened was that uh, we had a little glitch when we shifted from a shared server to our own personal server. And for the geeks in the crowd, uh, we're now on a virtual private server based on the Linux V server, which creates a virtual machine that protects our CPU and RAM resources uh, from the other users on the same physical machine. It isn't literally our own machine, but uh, it's an intermediate step before we have to make that jump. One advantage of this new server is that uh, I now can increase CPU speed and memory on the fly as our audience grows, and we only get charged for the incremental increases as they're made. I'd hoped uh, to be able to use the minimum settings, but that turned out to be a fantasy on my part. So right now, uh, in order to keep up with the growing number of simultaneous downloads of these podcasts, we've had to increase our monthly hosting fees by $40 a month. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is that uh, almost at the same time I committed to this increase, we received donations from Victoria T. and from our old friend and regular monthly donor, a dime short. So uh, thank you very much for your kind donations. Uh, I've taken them as a sign that I shouldn't worry about going forward with these podcasts because uh, people like you and, and all of the others who have donated to our cause over the past two years will fill the gaps that I can't manage on my own. And I also want to offer my public apology to the wonderful people at DreamHost who have uh, been letting us hog a shared server for much longer than any other web hosting company would have. In one of my past lives, I once worked in tech support, and I'm painfully aware of what jerks people can be when things break down. And as much as I hate to admit this, when our site went down during the transition last week, uh, well, I became one of those jerks myself and peppered them with a slew of nasty messages. But uh, they kept their cool and responded immediately and very professionally, uh, unlike yours truly. And they even gave us a month's credit for the inconvenience. Uh, so thanks a million, Dream Host, and I promise to be more professional myself should we ever have a, another unavoidable problem. You guys are the best, uh, and I, I really appreciate all you do to help keep the salon winging its way around the world. Now let's get on with today's program. I've uh, been saving this talk until I could find the right time to play it, and it seems to me that following Terrence's lecture in our last podcast, uh, well, now is the right time. What we're about to hear uh, is a talk that Mark Pesci gave at the Mind States Conference in Jamaica that uh, John Hanna produced in 2002, and it's titled, Bios and Logos. One of the things that I hope you'll pick up on in this presentation is that Mark isn't shy about disagreeing with opinions that he finds a flaw in, even if those opinions are coming from someone like Terrence McKenna. Actually, uh, I felt quite good when I heard Mark talk about challenging Terrence because, uh, well, he'd done the same with me, and uh, (laughs) so I felt that I was in good company after all. My point here is that uh, I hope you, too, will uh, not just accept everything you hear from our guests in the salon, or from me, for that matter. One of the main points about being a psychedelic thinker is that you think for yourself, and uh, not buy into ideas that don't suit you. The last thing we need to be doing here is to try and create some new kind of dogma or something. You know, times change, people change, Uh, even reality itself is constantly changing. So uh, let's not get too set in our own mental ways if we can avoid it. And I uh, know few people better suited to challenge one's personal point of view than Mark Pesci. I might have mentioned this before, but uh, when Mark and I first began exchanging ideas, we, uh, we seemed to be pretty far apart in a few areas. And to be honest, uh, six years ago, I didn't think we'd ever see eye to eye on any of the major challenges that are facing our species and its continuing evolution. But uh, when we got together at the 2006 Burning Man Festival, I was uh, astounded to discover that Mark had finally come around to my way of thinking. At least that was how I saw it. From uh, Mark's perspective, it it was probably the opposite. I had come around to his way of thinking. And uh, that may actually be closer to the truth. But the bottom line here is that uh, we both are constantly taking in new information and using it to update our views of the world. And the result is that we seem to be heading to the same shore, even if our ships are uh, following slightly different courses. So let's sit back now and uh, join my friend Mark Pesci as he discusses the concept of bios and logos and see if we can use some of his very interesting ideas to build upon as we continue this interesting journey out to the far reaches of consciousness.
1: I was first introduced to Mark Pesce at the All Chemical Arts Conference in Hawaii in uh, 1999, Nine. and um, you know I was just blown away. Uh, here's a guy who just had so many totally fascinating ideas, was working in so many interesting areas, and I thought, oh, I guess we're like, someday I will have him at one of my (laughs) conferences, and uh, then I read his book uh, The Playful World and I was just even more blown away and it's it's such a good book I can't over recommend it I think that you know, just go out and buy it and read it. Um, and I gave, I gave it to my mom, and she read it. Oh, I just loved that book. It was so, so it's even, you know, it's not particularly, it's very psychedelic, but it's not about psychedelics. It, does, it doesn't really mention drugs at all. Um, and, it, you know, maybe Mark will tell you a little bit more about this book, but um, it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that you can give to your mom. So, uh, but you know, so it's cross generational interest in this book. So anyway, I'm babbling now, and I uh, will just let Mark uh, take over doing that for me.
2: I had my opening joke when the when the program was originally constructed. It was supposed to go Sasha, and then me, and then Alex Gray, and I was gonna make a joke that I feel like a plate spinner on Ed Sullivan between Elvis and the Beatles. Forgive <laughs> me, and also, by the way, I changed I picked this out uh, wardrobe about weeks ago. No, I am not a bus boy. <laughs> All right. And I apologize for being absent out of the sessions uh, over the last couple of hours. I always get very frenetic right before a talk because the ideas are always floating around and then come together and I just sat down and started to bang things out. I've been banging them out for a month already, but they finally started to coalesce today. So this is not going to be an information download. This is going to be a journey that we're all going to go on together. I'm going to tell you some stories. They're sort of just-so stories. They might be true. They might not be true. But they're frames, and we can start to use these frames to play with to understand my consuming desire, which is to understand where we are, how we got here, and where we're going. And this was, as far as I could tell, the consuming desire of one of a man that I was very proud to call a friend, Terence McKenna, as you know, has, has since passed away. And I became aware of his work many years before I really even knew who he was because I read a book called Cosmic Trigger by Robert Anton Wilson. Wilson gives about three pages of his book over to this model of time and history that McKenna had written about in 1974 in this book called The Invisible Landscape. And Terence and I had started a conversation, we became friends in, in 1998 those stories I told you when we got things started. and. The conversation was evolving around the ideas that were in his book, and he had always wanted someone or some people to come along and try to at least challenge the ideas in this book. And we'll get to what the ideas in this book are over the course of this talk. Has anyone read this book in this room? Okay, so several of you have and are familiar with it.
1: Um,
2: What I want to talk about in the broadest possible sense is the idea of a resonant, theory of history, that there's an idea that history isn't just a sort of discontinuous set of events, but that there's an ebb and a flow to it, and that right now, and for the foreseeable future, there's going to be a lot more flow to it than ebb. And Tarant talked about this in terms of something he called the time wave, which is, you can think of it almost as a sound that's passing through time, a pitch, a whine, and that as that sound passes through things, they start to resonate with it, they start to change their form because of it. and it's interesting because particularly in the psychedelic community we give a lot of credence to shamanic revelation that people out in the Amazon can ingest ayahuasca and hear the plants talk to them and understand the past, the future the present and we give less credence in our own community and in our own culture to the authenticity of that same experience. And part of what I want to do is start to question that directly, because I think that the revelation of the psychedelic experience is just as valid, not for someone who's simply in the Amazon, although Terence was in the Amazon when he had this revelation, but he wasn't situated in the Amazonian culture. But for us as people who are in modern Western culture and the revelations that we have, that they're not just simply trips, but that there's an understanding that underlies them. In any case, I've been studying the time wave and his theory of the eschaton, the eschaton being a term meaning the end of history, for 20 years now since I originally encountered the ideas. And they are mostly referred to in a psychedelic framework, however, in 1993, a writer named Werner was who is best known as a science fiction writer, although he was also a professor of mathematics in San Diego, was invited to NASA to give a talk, and he gave a talk on something he called the Singularity. The Singularity is a word you're going to be hearing a lot of if you haven't heard it already. Has anyone already heard the word? So a number of people have already heard the word. All right. The singularity is how Terence's idea of the eschaton is working its way now into popular culture through scientists. And so we already, scientists already talk about singularities because they talk about black holes. And black holes are singularities in physics, where all of the rules we think of in the physical world don't apply anymore. And when we talk about the Big Bang, which is before any you know, of the rules of the physical world applied. And so we already have existences of things that they call singularities. But now we're starting to see the emergence of an idea that's called the singularity about a force in history that we're approaching. And reputable scientists are talking about this in reputable ways all the time now. So what I want to do is give you my own little take on what this idea is. And it's a combination of what Terence's ideas were with the time wave and what modern science is thinking about. Now... One of the ways that this idea has gotten into some sort of popularity, the idea of the singularity, is in a book that's come out called The Age of Spiritual Machines by Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil was one of the original pioneers of artificial intelligence. There's a lot in this book that I I think is pure bunk, but he's very well respected rightly or wrongly, in the scientific community. And one of the things that he says is that as computers get faster and smaller and faster and smaller, they get progressively more intelligent. And sometime in the next 30 years, computers are going to pass humans in their raw levels of intelligence. And at that point, everything becomes very unknowable because at that point there's going to be a question about who's doing what, who's running the show, what's really going on. And he calls that moment the singularity. And that's one way that the idea of the singularity has approached modern science. And his argument is that at that point we may not be the dominant species on the planet. We may have produced, in a sense, our own intellectual heirs. Now, I, don't, I do not buy that argument. If you want to talk to me offline, I can give you a long, recent explanation for why I don't buy that argument. But the main reason is because we've been studying artificial intelligence for 50 years and we have not made computers one more intelligence in, in those 50 years. Because it turns out, we've learned very little about artificial intelligence, but we've learned an awful lot about human intelligence. And the thing that we've learned about with human intelligence is that you need to grow it. The human intelligence emerges. And so what I want to talk about then is three kinds of emergence. Emergence has become now my model for understanding how the world works, where we came from, where we are, and where we're going. So I'm now going to talk about three different time scales. I'm going to talk about the creation and the emergence of life on Earth, which happened four billion years ago the creation and emergence of the human species, which happened about 150,000 years ago, and the creation and emergence of technological civilization, which happened about 5,500 years ago. And what I want to do is show these as three waves. And these three waves fit inside of one another, because they're happening on different temporal scales. But they all seem to be approaching the same end point. So you can think of them as three arcs, each inside the other, all approaching the same point. One of the most influential books that I read, which helped me to get an understanding of how life came to be on Earth, was a book called Quantum Evolution, which was just published in America last year. It was published in Britain two years ago, and it was published by a biologist named John McFadden. John McFadden is not just some flake. He's actually A serious molecular biologist. He understands the biology of tuberculosis better than any other single human being on the planet. And one of the things that he noticed when he was doing his research is that sometimes DNA does weird, unpredictable things. And he didn't understand why. And he started to take a close look at this and he realized that one of the things we've never looked at is that the quantum world, when we think of the quantum world as this world of sort of fuzziness where some things can happen and some things don't happen, or maybe they both happen and don't happen. It's this world of physics that underlies everything, but it's a very spooky, almost ghostly world. we looked at it for chemistry. we looked at it for physics. Well, what's the next thing after physics and chemistry? It's biology. We're built out of chemicals. We're built using the laws of physics. But no one had actually said we should take a look at the quantum laws and see if they apply to physical systems, if they apply to living systems. Well, he's done that now. And they've actually started doing some tests. And he's found some very interesting things. And he's made a proposal. Your DNA that's in your cells is constantly interacting with the world around it. It's constantly being turned into proteins that are being used to create your body. That's what it is. Processes DNA is transcribed, it becomes protein, it becomes you. Well, there are periods of time when your DNA isn't sitting and doing anything at all when it's quiescent. And at that time, when it's not interacting with the world around it, it can enter what physicists call superposition. When it's not interacting, it can enter a quantum state. All right, That quantum state says that it can be in this universe, in this universe, in this universe, in this universe. In this universe. Well it can be in a lot of different universes, in fact it can be in ten with five hundred zeros following it. Possible universes. And when I gave a talk at State, I actually said the number of zeros. It takes about two minutes to actually get through all the zeros, I'll spare you that. All right. So what does this mean? This means that in the original primal Earth, when there was just a sea of various chemicals rolling around, what happens if these chemicals aren't interacting with the environment of arms. They can go into superposition. What do they do when they're in superposition? They can try A, B, C, D, so on and so forth until so you get 10 to the 500, until they find a way to sort of carry on. Molecule A and molecule B might go into superposition and then find an interesting universe in which they interact. And then what happens is because they interact, they exit all of these universes and enter another one. And this is going on all the time, all around you. Some of you are in some of the molecules inside of you are in superposition right now. But what happens is if you take this back to when the Earth was very young. This provides now a possible model for explaining why something so improbable as the creation of life on Earth could actually happen. It's because the natural world could exploit the fact that there are this multiverse of universes and could actually create all the lucky assets. Because when you get to 10 to 500 possibilities, everything that's really improbable is absolutely inevitable. So that book blew my mind, because what it did is it laid a foundation for being able to explain the physical action that created life. All right, so that book was a first foundational text. The second book is a a book that's just come out called A New Kind of Science by Stephen Wolfram. Now, how many of you have heard of that one? All right. Stephen Wolfram is probably going to go down next to Newton. All right, there's a big sort of discussion going around right now about whether his book is good or if it's bunk, and they're probably going to be having that discussion for about the next hundred years. The book's been out six months, and most everyone I know is still working their way through it, still trying to figure out what he's saying is true. Here's what he's done in a nutshell. If you take the world of Newton, so the world of 17th century classical physics, everything, are formula, E equals MC squared, F equals MA, PV equals NRT, all right. They're all formulas. Put one thing in, you get another thing out. Well, that's useful, and physics has a place for that to happen. But what Wolfram says is that there's another kind of physics, a new kind of science. And it's a science where you actually have to walk through a process from one end to another to get to the result. In other words, there's no formula that gives you a rose. We know this. We've always known this. There's no formula that gets you a rose. How do you get a rose? You have to grow it. And so what Wolfram does is he starts to explore the mathematics that give rise to the emergent forms of the world. And all living forms are emergent forms. So the difference between Newton and Wolfram is the difference between Newton and Darwin. Because you can't explain Darwin with the formula. That's why people still call it the theory of evolution, because they haven't found it reducible to a formula that's repeatable. What Wolfram has done is provide a mathematical basis of understanding for how processes can happen through time to get from point A to point B. And the thing he says, and he calls this the... um, The law of computational equivalence is that there's no way to cheat getting from point A to point B with these systems, with these processes in time. There's no formula you can use that will get you from point A to point B. What you have to do is you have to walk all the steps. You actually have to grow from point A to point B, and you can't know what point B is going to be in advance. This is very important because what it does is it sets a limit on what we know, but also provides a path for how we can come to know it. So what he's now doing is he's giving us the scientific and intellectual tools for us to come to an understanding of how the world emerges from these very simple
1: interactions.
2: And What I think we're going to see is that over the next hundred years we're going to start to apply this model. If you can think of the ultimate... This expression of Newtonian civilization as the bottom line, alright, that there's this formula you can apply and you finally come up with a number and you just apply the formula and you get the number, it's not going to be the bottom line that we're going to be looking at in this next level of understanding, it's going to be the process that gets us there. Okay, what does this mean? I want to tie this now back in. Is, are we, is, that, is that fairly clear? I under, We all understand what does this mean about the history of Earth? Because I said that way back up to four billion years ago. Well, we know that as soon as the Earth was cool enough, light formed. And the Earth wasn't particularly cool when light formed. The average temperature on Earth when light formed was 160 degrees, which is considerably hotter than it is now. And the forms that emerged when cool the Earth was that warm could deal with Earth at that temperature. And what happened was that there were enough interactions going on, there was enough quantum evolution, quantum biology going on, that these forms could start to pop out in the multiverse, they could replicate, and they could continue to exist. Once life popped out, all of a sudden, it's no longer a formula that's, that's evolving, but it's the set of interactions between all these entities that are going on. So now we've moved from this quantum world to the world of Wolfram, so You have all these different entities that are interacting together and you can't predict the kind of interactions that these entities are going to, are going to have. You simply have to let them grow. So you have a couple of different kinds of interactions. Some entities eat other entities. All right? So you have hunter and prey. Some entities convert sunlight into energy. They don't have to eat, they just sort of hang out. Some entities incorporate other entities, and that's another form. And each of you are are part of that because each of you and every one of your cells has something called a mitochondrion. And a mitochondrion is an organ that existed as a separate biological entity three billion years ago, but was brought into your cells and is now a part of each of your cells. So you are, in fact, a combination, a synthesis between two types of very old organisms. So the next four billion years that gets to us You can think of as a continuous set of interactions between all of these organisms, and there's no overall plan to these interactions, but because there are simple rules that are being repeated through time, they're becoming, they're creating more and more complex emergence of forms. And every interaction that every organism has with any other organism in the environment leaves an impression on the organism, right? There's always some exchange, whether it's positive or negative. There are no exchanges that are really neutral. When these exchanges are very important, when they threaten the life of the organism, the organism records the interaction. And the recording medium that's been used for all of history for that interaction is DNA. DNA is a memory of the interactions that organisms have had with their environment through time. So it's that record. And DNA, at base, its is nothing but information. All right? That's what it is. And it's a very slow form of information because it changes, it modifies it very, very slowly. But, every one of you, in almost every one of your cells, has a complete record of the last 4 billion years of life, because every one of those interactions, when they become serious enough, have been brought into your genetic code. Alright, so that's how we get from the dawn of life to the dawn of man. So now we're going to go 150,000 years ago, South Africa to the place where they, as far as everyone can tell, Homo sapiens emerged. Now, these people who existed 150,000 years ago are genetically identical to everyone in this room, but we don't call them modern man. They're Homo sapiens, but we don't call them modern man, or at least anthropologists don't call them modern man. There's a reason for this. We don't see what we would think of as human culture within them. Now, there's been a bit of disagreement about when human culture began, and that disagreement has to do with what it, uh, has to do with how we define what human culture is. Prior to last year, we set the mark for the beginning of human culture at about 35,000 years ago. We found this is because artifacts exist that we know were created by modern humans. Well, last year they found some artifacts that dated to about 77,000 years ago, and so all of a sudden we doubled the length of time that modern humans exist. Well, what were these artifacts? Well, there were some wiggling lines that had been carved out on a piece of rock. That's it. But what does that mean? Let me go back to the people who preceded us, the Neanderthals. All right, the Neanderthals existed from about somewhere between 400 to 300,000 years ago and they existed co with humans and died out between 30 and 20,000 years ago. And the Neanderthals used artifacts, they used simple, wood, uh, simple stone tools and things like this but they didn't have any sort of artifacts that evolved over their period of time. Their level of technical expertise never changed for the entire span of time they were on Earth. In other words, there was no internal cultural evolution in their artifacts. It's as if they started out at one point, and they stayed. So they started out adapting, and then they ended because they had failed to adapt. The thing that we find from the moment we see these first etchings on a piece of rock, is we've now started to see that humans, modern humans, are starting to adapt their environments. And specifically, they're starting to adapt their environments symbolically, because etchings on a piece of stone are not a tool, it's not something that you can cut better with. not something you can hunt an animal better with or dig up a plant better with. It's there because it signifies something. So now we're starting to see the thing that actually makes us what we are, which is a linguistic consciousness. We are symbol manipulating, we are symbol using, and we place symbols all around us in the world. So, that means that these human beings that existed 75,000 years ago were linguistically capable. Now, it's believed that the Neanderthals could talk, but let me quantify what I mean by talk. They could use very simple words and very simple phrases. If you think of a child when they're about one year old, They can identify objects and perhaps identify actions, but they do not have the ability of a two-year-old. The two-year-old can take a limited number of words and then string them together in an arbitrary order to be able to produce meaning. That's the difference between Neanderthal and a human being as we understand it. All of a sudden we went from this very limited set of descriptors for the world to now a completely unbounded ability to be able to describe the world that's what we are. At the end of the day, we strip everything else away. We are the possessors of a linguistic ability which is infinitely extensible. Now, that's a big deal, it's such a big deal. There's no other precedent. We haven't been able to find this ability in any other species. We've been looking for it in the dolphins, we've been looking for it in the primates, so on and so forth. We haven't found it in any other species. It's such a big deal that it ended up changing us in a very fundamental way because
1: for four
2: billion years, we had simply been the product of the genetic code that had slowly been building up this historical process that had been added to bit by bit by bit by bit. And all of a sudden now, we become symbolic manipulators. Well, when you free the ability to be able to manipulate the world from the biological substrate that it was located in before, it goes faster. How much faster? Well, Ray Kurzweil says that the difference between a computer's ability to think and a neuron's ability to think is about 10 million to 1. The ability for you to react to your environment from your genetic code versus being able to react to your environment because you can communicate it by the using language is probably at least 10 million to 1 times faster. So that means, the same time that we acquired the ability to speak, everything about us, in terms of humanity and human culture and human thought and human understanding, suddenly went 10 million times faster. That pops you into a completely different realm, because all of a sudden we are not natural. There's a second layer of things going on. There's this biological layer of bios, which is what we're made out of, but now there's this linguistic nature, or logos, which is on top. And the biological nature hadn't really been prepped for what was going to happen once things started going 10 million times faster. And that's why human beings are, in a sense, such an oddity in the history of humanity. The world. It's because not only are we this biological thing that emerged, but we're now this linguistic thing that emerged, and this linguistic thing is in some sense very much more powerful than the biological thing that's containing it. And that means that the conception of the world, which had existed simply as things, all right, the immediate sense that the animal has, can think of that as the animal consciousness, we've now stepped away from it because that linguistic capability has forced us away from it. And so everything you look at in this world, you don't see it as it is. What you see it is as is as you linguistically interpret it. And this is what Terence McKenna once said when he said that the word, the world is made of words, and if you know the right words, you can make of the world what you will. So, um, there's been a lot of talk, particularly from the postmodern philosophers, and I, I read the postmodern philosophers, about the Disneyfication of the world, that the world, going to Times Square or something like this, has been turned into a giant media space where everything you see is now trying to sell you something or make you believe something or make you think something, so on and so forth. And they're talking about this as if this is a relatively recent event and what we have to remember is that this is not a recent event that for as long as there have been shaman and storytellers who have been telling us stories linguistic tales about the way the world works so for as long as we've been human beings this process has been going on that in fact for all of human time the world has always been linguistic and we've always been apprehending it through a linguistic interface now now That's all well and good, but there's something going on here. Our linguistic capability, because it's not immediately part of our biology, it's got a will of its own. The biology has a will to survive, it has a will to propagate it, it has a will to carry itself on. But the logos, our linguistic capability, it's got a completely different set of prerogatives. And you know what? ever since we got the ability to speak, it's been driving the vehicle. It's not the body that's been driving the vehicle, it's been our linguistic ability that's been driving the vehicle. The body has always been subordinate. And it's been driving to its own end, to its own teleology, its own arc. We assume that we are the masters of the word, we are the masters of language, and in fact it's precisely the opposite. The word is the master of us. And this is, in some sense, what Richard was talking about last night, because you have to be very careful about the way we are used by language, because language is an instrument of control. Now, it started to pop up in scientific concepts, because a few years ago, an evolutionary biologist called Richard Dawkins coined a word, the mean, which many of you are probably familiar with. And he it thinks of it as the linguistic equivalent of the gene. Means want to propagate like genes do, they want to go through and basically affect as many minds as possible and pass them through and so on and so forth. And so we got from the emergence of life four billion years ago, DNA, which is the carrier for biology, and then from the emergence of our linguistic capability of 100,000 years ago, the mean which moves 10 million times faster than biology does, and because of that, can always outwit and outrun biology in any situation. All right, so now let's bring ourselves forward into modern culture, technological culture. If we've been driven by means for the last 100,000 years, we've been forced further and further away from the natural world, and it's not really as if... We have any choice about our alienation from the natural world because the thing that makes us human is the thing that makes us alienated. We can't really have it both ways. Um, The problem is, or the current situation is this what's happening is that we're being hollowed out by our means. The things that we would associate with interiority, that we can have private thoughts and private feelings. They're in conflict with the desire of means to be able to propagate and spread. Just do it. Enjoy Coke. Alright. Or is it McDonald's wants to make you smile, I can't remember. All of this stuff is getting in there and is working at hollowing out what we would think of as the interior nature of the human being. Now interiority was only recognized in the enlightenment and it was only recognized in the enlightenment as it was really starting to disappear.
1: And as
2: this hollowing out gets more progressive and more progressive and more progressive, we're going to start to see an error where what we would think of as the individual as existing, sort of privately and apart from the collection of individuals and the collection of culture, is going to disappear. And that could be perceived as being a very frightening thought. And we'll now talk about why it may or may not be. But what's going on when people start bringing up terms like the singularity or the end of history is what's happening is that we're starting to understand now in a very profound way how much control the logos has, the words have, over what we are in our biology, how much they're starting to dictate what we are in the world. Now the thing about the singularity, it's almost silly. It it came to me quite clearly a couple of months ago. The singularity that's going on has no more meaning to it. It's no more meaningful an event than what happens when you put a microphone too close to an amplifier, okay? You get that line of feedback, but that line of feedback completely drowns out anything else that's going on in the system. And so, in essence, what's happening is that as we're improving our ability to communicate, that's where we're going next in our talk, we're improving this ability to feedback to transmit the ideas to the locus. And the truth is, we're so far down that path that we only have a little bit more to go. Okay, so, I'm going to bring this back to what Turns was talking about. We've now covered four billion years ago. We've now covered 150,000 years ago. We've covered a little bit of where we are now. I'm going to bring it back to the invisible landscape. Terence drew an awful lot of his work from the work of Alfred North Whitehead, Process and Reality, being his big philosophical book, which I've read several pages of. It's, It's dance. Um, I've been able to read other people writing about Whitehead, so I have some understanding of what he was talking about. But I did get a very important concept from it, which became a core concept in the playful world, which was the idea of concrescence. Concrescence is the idea that when you have different forces that come together, that is where novelty is produced. So you can have one type of force and another type of force, and where they need to stack Concrescence occurs. Novelty is created. Now he took that idea, and turns took that idea and ran with it. And he said basically, since the beginning of time, there have been these different processes that have been happening, and that you could mod- you could think of these processes being waves that can be modeled, and that the intersection of these waves at any moment would give you some idea of the overall amount of novelty in the world at any particular point in time. There's a model that I can give you that can help you understand this. Uh, many of you know what an MP3 is, right? The digital form for analog music. Well, how an MP3 actually works is it takes all the complexity of the sounds you're hearing in a piece of music and breaks it down into individual descriptions of waves. And when those individual descriptions of waves are recombined, you get the music. And so essentially what Terence was saying is that underneath all this craziness that we think of as history are these series of waves. And But history is the way of putting them together to produce the music of time. And McKenna actually used the I Ching as a guide for all of this, and you can argue about whether that was true or not, because it provided for him a very interesting map or time scale for showing how these waves are coming together.
1: Um,
2: and at the end, he was able to produce a formula. And you know, this formula would provide a way for you to know how much concrescence, how much novelty, was occurring at any particular point in time. And he then ran this calculation, he ran this formula, and he took a look at history and said, okay, let me see if this is actually going on. Where can I fit this formula, this output of this formula, this wave to history, so I can get some sense of where we are in the historic points right now? And he laid uh, it laid out against his own understanding of history, and he came up with an endpoint of December 21st, 2012 as being the end, when novelty is maximized, when we all end up being transcended into something else. And he later on found out that was the end deed of the mind calendar, which may or may not have any significance. But what I want to talk about is that even if the model that McKenna presented for arriving at an understanding of when novelty as a force in the universe would be maximized, whether or not the specifics of that model are true, what I want to do is provide a model that I think we can entirely base in a scientific understanding of biology. And the scientific understanding of information to get to the same point. So we've been able to identify three progressive waves over the course of this talk. We've been able to define the emergence of life four billion years ago to where we are now, the emergence of a linguistic species ten, a hundred thousand years ago to now, and the emergence of a technological species about fifty-five hundred years ago to now. Now. Let's take a look at what happened four billion years ago. we got the medium of DNA as the information recording device for the world. we talked about that. That medium and the accumulation of that medium was very gradual, but now what's happened in the last 20 years is all of a sudden that medium, which existed as an information transmission mechanism for biology, has now become an information coding mechanism that is manipulable linguistically by us. I want you to think about the human genome. You don't now think about the human genome as those twisting uh, double helixes of DNA. Now you think of it as a long series of Gs, As, Cs, and Ts. You've all seen them. All right? Which are the codes. You talk about the film Gattaca, the title Gattaca comes from that code. So, all of a sudden, we've made this transition from thinking about biology as a physical medium to now thinking, thinking about biology as a linguistic medium. So, what we've done is we've now stuck that four million years into the space of linguistics, where we can manipulate it linguistically 10 million times faster than we had before. Okay. Second, you have the emergence of linguistic species 100,000 years ago, and that was all well and good. And then what happened was that in 1840, the telegram was invented, and all of a sudden a linguistic species can now start spreading its own information. And you can do the math. It's close enough, 10 million times faster. You can actually do the math, but the difference between the speed of sound and the speed of light is about a million times, but whatever. So it's now possible to spread messages a million times faster. And Marshall McLuhan, who wrote about this back in the 1960s, said it was essentially as if the entire human race had been converted to a single nervous system, although a nervous system is actually much slower than a electric kind of connection. But what had happened was because there was now so much information transfer, so much communication between the members of the species, they could functionally act as a single organism. Mm -hmm. So now the transmission of facts and ideas has become an instantaneous feature of life, culminated now on the internet. And because of that, there's a greater capability for ideas to meet, interact, and produce congresses. And the history of the 20th century, with all of its wars and everything, could actually be more accurately characterized as a series of advancements in communication. If so you start with the radio, and then go to the television, and then go to the internet one step after another in an advancing, increasing capability. And every step along the way, the communication capability, it makes it easier and easier for messages, for means to pass from person to person to person. Because what's happening is that on top of everything that's going on with us as biology, the secret history, the history we're only starting to become aware of, is that the means are using us to make us better vehicles for transmitting means. That's what's really going on. So that's the history of biology and the history of the human species in the modern frame. That's where those waves are now starting to crash down into ground. Let's take a look at the emergence of the technological species, which is more recent than the emergence of the human species. What happened was 5,500 years ago, language became a concrete artifact. What happened was that language got written down. The advent of writing, writing is really the first technology of significance to modern civilization. And it means that you could actually turn something that was linguistic and existed sort of in this ether, you could turn it into a physical object. And it's interesting because they used to believe that writing emerged in Mesopotamia and then so they traveled the world after this, and they've now since discovered that language emerged, pardon, writing emerged simultaneously in Egypt and in Mesopotamia. They don't know why, but they know that it emerged simultaneously in both places. And writing was the exteriorization, it was the concrete form of our drive to communicate. So we've seen now how we've converted DNA from this very slow biological medium into this very fast form of codes. And we've taken the relatively slow form of communication via voice and turned it into the instantaneous communication of telecommunication. And now what we're going to see is an equivalent acceleration in technology. This is the third and final wave, and it's going to finish us off. Things may look like they're going fast now. We think that the world's going fast. Trust me, it's absolutely nothing to what is just about to come, and it's something that we have no precedent for. But what's happening is that our technique, our technical ability, is about to leap up and, and uh, separate itself from the logos, from our linguistic ability. What do I mean when I say this? There's an emerging science known as nanotechnology, which it, it is really exploding right now. And before very much time has passed by, it's going to give us very fine grained control over the material world. When Sasha was up here, he was talking about wanting the blackboard where you could just snap bits of molecules on and off together. And this is precisely what nanotechnology is going to offer us right now. Organic chemists have to use very tried and true techniques of, and, and very mass techniques to do such and such a thing to add a radical or take a radical off, whereas the the world we're going to, the entire physical world, can now start to look a lot more like Legos that get snapped together at will. And if you think about the difference between building a castle out of sand and building a castle out of Legos, you're starting to understand the difference that we're about to be presented with the material world so that the atomic scale level of the material world is about to become linguistically pliable. This is an ability we have never had before. All right. So that means that in this world that we're just starting to enter, anything that you see, whether it's animate or inanimate, will have within itself the capacity to be entirely transformed by our linguistic capabilities. That there's now going to be a very rapid transfer of information between the physical nature of the world and our linguistic nature. And that's going to now produce another kind of world. And it's very hard for us to conceptualize what a world like that looks like, although that was the point of writing The Playful World, because what I did for The Playful World was to write a book that talked about the scope of this revolution, but did it by talking about children's toys, which are the least threatening objects adults have in the world, or kids for that matter. But you can use those toys to illustrate the broad scope of the transformations that are taking place. The one thing that I did not step away from The one idea that I had that I did not step away from when I was writing this book, although I think that it's a relatively disturbing concept for people who are not used to the idea, is that the only way we can conceptualize that kind of world is by identifying it with what we would conceive of as magic. It will be as if we have the ability to cast spells that actually change the quality of the material world. Let me me quote Terence once again, and I want to thank Todd for this because I got this out of uh, the talk that he made at the Alchemical Arts. He and I were very much having this conversation. He said, this downloading of language into objectified intentionality replaces the electrons that blindly run and replaces it instead with a magical, literarily controlled phase space of some sort where wishes come true, curses work, fates unfold, and everything has the quality of drama, denying entropic mechanical existence. Now, that isn't to say we're about to become omnipotent, because this is not what's about to happen. But our abilities are about to become now so much broader than anything we've ever had to conceptualize. We have no language for it. We had none, which means that this is another indication that our linguistic capabilities are coming up against a wall. That there has to be some sort of shift, some sort of shift in our understanding for it. And the search to define that language is the grand project of our current civilization. We know that something new is approaching, but there's really—let me step back for a second because. When people encounter this idea, and this idea is starting to suffuse the culture as a whole, whether people know it consciously or unconsciously, They're starting to see the shape of this new world. And if it fills them with horror, and could very easily fill people with horror, what happens is they retreat into fundamentalism. They step away from this world. They insist that it is not happening, and step back into an earlier version of this world, which, by the way, is a linguistic construction. and doesn't actually have any exterior reality. But it's a safe place from which they can then curse the world. And we've seen in just too much detail lately what the price we pay for that stepping away is. There's an alternative tendency with people who are too reliably optimistic about what the structure of that world is going to be. And they're willing to, they're willing to accept any form that world is going to offer them. and. That could be some sort of very weird communion with the machinic intelligences in which they sacrifice their own humanity in order to become incorporated as elements within this larger Mm -hmm. linguistic space. And there are real dangers there, too. But there are people who are very pro that, that that say that this change is coming, I don't care what form it takes. And so you, you have, in a sense, to, to get uh, Homeric about this, these are the Silla and Shrivis of the modern age. These are the points we have to sort of sail our way through in order to get to where we're actually going. Once these three waves, in synchrony and resonance, start to come down on shore, it's my belief, and I want you to prove me right, that the psychedelic community represents the authentic search for a middle path. Because what's happening in the psychedelic experience is that there's a stretching of being. There's a stretching of being that allows new forms of language and new ideas to enter. We all understand this intuitively because we come back from the psychedelic experience with some expanded sense of awareness that we've been opened up to an understanding we didn't have before. And so, psychedelic experience. And Terence really talked about this. Psychedelic experience could be used as a force, uh, as a mechanism to force the evolution of language that we could actually harness the engines that are being offered by the psychedelic experience to be able to create new forms and that those new forms would then help to shape the new world that we're entering. And so we have the three waves. We have that biological wave that's four billion years old. We have the linguistic wave that's 100,000 years old. And we have the technological wave that's 5,500 years old. And they're rapidly moving to this compressive point. And on the way they're producing a tsunami with so much novelty that it's never been experienced before in the history of the planet. At the same time, we find ourselves within this increasingly narrow space, where we're really having to now start to fight a battle even to think thoughts within our own heads. And we're being confined not just linguistically, but we're now starting to be confined biologically, because now that we've converted biology to a code, it becomes linguistically manipulable, it becomes a tool for control and technology is now also becoming a tool for control. So we have to be very cognizant of the fact that the escape that we're looking for can't be found just by relying on any of these older systems. And Terrence actually was very uh, promoting the concept of the forward escape, and when you find yourself in a narrow passage, you simply hit the accelerator and start going as fast as you can. It's a French concept. We can see now that there's a birth coming, that there's a, an emergence in a new form of being. You can argue about whether it would happen in 2012 or 2020 or 2015 or tomorrow afternoon. You can argue about the specifics of when it's going to happen, but what you can't argue about is that there are these three ways. We can take a look at the shape of these three ways and the fact that these three ways seem to be compressing on a single point and that this single point is where Homo sapiens is going to be left behind and we're going to see the emergence of a new species. And I think of the psychedelic community as the people who are capable of taking stock of the entirety of the transformation, because you've been thrust into spaces where you don't have any words, and you've been forced to come back and create your own understandings, and because what will be permanently true for all of us in a few years has been occasionally temporarily true for us. And because we've been there, we don't give into to amazement, we don't give into to fear, we don't give into to speed or pretty blinking lights. You know, talking to aliens, been there. The end of history, been there. And in fact, maybe all the bizarre trips we've ever had have been just what we need as humanity enters its last bizarre trip. Now, it just a couple of months before he died, just on the beginning of the millennium, I went to visit Terence in Hawaii. And I had brought my copy of Invisible Landscape he had signed sign before then. And he, and he uh, signed it. And this is what he wrote. He said, properly understood this book. book is a map to the stone, as above so below. He was talking about the Philosopher's Stone. And this Philosopher's Stone has the capability of conversing base metals into gold. Uh, of course, that's an allegory. It means it can connect. connect take the base matter of consciousness and transmute it to a higher form of consciousness. And then he closed it with as above, so below. And really pardon me?
1: Thank you. I'm sorry. I was was waxing LJ for a minute. Um,
2: He knew that this book was a metaphor that it may or may not have been literally true. But what he closed it with was, as above, so below. But what he was really saying was, as inside, so without. That the things that you can find in the internal landscape, the invisible landscape, were the keys to be able to find how to get out, to to, to work it out in the world. What he was saying was that the stuff within us, the stuff we experience, is the ultimate guide to that incredible journey that lies before us, because these waves are coming together and they're crashing right on the shore
1: of our souls.
2: Thanks. How uh, are we doing on time?
1: We're doing great on time. we going to take some questions. Yeah, of course. Oh, yes. Okay, so part of your talk is what you spoke about uh, the idea of kind of nanotechnology right. and sort of paraphrasing you, but our ability to become godlike, perhaps, with uh, changing reality right. through this technology. Right. So that would lead me to think that we can do anything we want to do to some degree. Now another part of your talk is you spoke about means right. being the uh, linguistic sort of the genes, and there's means we're running the show. Oh, right. Now, the means are running the show, right. and yet we can do anything we
2: want to do. Right. There seems to be a contradiction. Well, to who's to the we, way, we that can do whatever we want to do? Is, I mean, there, there's not an essential contradiction because part of what we're starting to understand is that that we. You know, We you say, we can do whatever we want to do. The question is, what is that we? Where is that we coming from? And what we're starting to understand now is that we're less we than we used to be. And the place that we're going is going to force a real redefinition. And this is problem language. becomes very slippery at this point. But uh, uh, there is a process of the loss of interiority, which is going on here. And there's an upside and a downside to it. The downside is the thing that we think of as the individual is increasingly less vital. The upside is the thing that we think of as the community is increasingly more vital. Alright? So there's a loss and a gain there. And so when you say, well we can make of the world what we want, the question becomes now, are we entering a civilization or a culture or a form that that decision is being made by us collectively for the common good, or is it being made singly in order to sort of produce domination and control, and I think this is very much where Richard was coming from. I mean, my answer, in a sense, to surveillance society and to surveillance culture, is that you need to—you can have as much surveillance as you want, as long as everyone has access to it. All right? It's always the old question: Who shall guard the guardians? All right? And so, if you say, if you step into a culture and say there's going to be a top and a bottom in this culture. and I'm going to try as hard as I can to be on the top. You're accepting an entire mindset about what the products of that culture are going to be, and you've already made your decision about who that we is. All right.
1: So, so with the, sort of the meme idea, then where does the concept of free will
2: fit in? That's a good question. All right, and I'm not saying there isn't such thing as free will. What I'm saying is that it's forcing us to take a very good look at this. All right. I don't think that there's. An ultimate answer to this. Part of what we think of as free will is uh, emerges, emerges, literally emerges from the, the raw complexity of the interactions that take place in our life. All right, but I draw. Hold on, I draw, I've got you. I draw. I draw a lot of my own inspiration from the Sufis. And the Sufis make it quite clear that man does not live in free will, but he has to grow into a state of free will by practice, all right, that most of your actions are mechanical and that there's really, you may, have, you may feel you have free will, but most of your actions are mechanical. I ascribe to that school that, in fact, free will is something that you earn by encountering the world and emerging into free will rather than something that you just get.
1: And that's Robert Anton Wilson makes that point in a book on meditation on some part of it called Yourself" and the illusion of free will that
2: we have it. You don't have to do anything. Part of our religions. Right. Right. And it's it's a dangerous meme because it makes people complacent in the fact that they think they have free will. Whereas most of the mystical schools will tell you, no, you don't. But you can probably have it if you work hard at it. I mean, it, it's a very contentious ground because, particularly in the West, free will is regarded as an essential human right. It's part of our enlightenment tradition. Yes? So, who or what is running the means? Well, yeah, I mean, the means are. Who or what is running the means is the means are. The means the have been, the means are fundamentally looking to simply optimize their transmission from brain to brain to brain to brain. I will tell you that um, this, this is a funny story. I came to this conclusion because I spent an evening in Switzerland smoking dope with the modern mother of meme theory, a woman by the name of Susan Blackwell, who, uh, because she had chronic fatigue syndrome, decided she needed to start smoking pot. And we, we spent a very nice stone evening in Lucerne talking about memes, and I started to understand over the course of my conversation with her that really what she was talking about was that memes were starting to they had been sort of in a constant struggle for optimization. And so when you talk about you know who's running the show, well the memes are but the goal they have in mind, when you ask about biology, what's running the show? Well an evolutionary biologist tells you that what's running the show is the drive to pass your genes on to the next generation. And that at a base level is the only thing that's going on. right? As far as Ducks or guppies or whatever a concern. That's what's going on, all right. With memes and, and it, it's simplistic, it's reductionistic, but it's a model that you can use to understand. I'm not saying it's the final one. It's a model. The next level, you can say, with the memes. Well what are the memes trying to do? They're trying to they're trying to get out there as widely as possible. But the way they're doing that is by optimizing their ability to be transmitted.
1: The biologist uh, Rupert Sheldrake. Sheldrake. Has, right. uh, the concept posits the concept of the morphogenetic field, mm-hmm. and uh, for him, the morphogenetic field is intelligent. It is an intelligent field, mm-hmm. and it is, uh, in, in a sense, its goal is to self-propagate in a way that the meme is. Can you draw a parallel between the, uh, the morphogenetic field and the meme from the standpoint of your yeah. literary, you know, post-post biological uh, discourse?
2: Well the, well, the interesting thing is, is that um, you know, the morphogenic field in biology produces uh, an, an easing of the way around biological systems to be able to reproduce behavior, right? And the same thing may or may not be true in, me, in mimetics, and actually this brings up an important point that I wanted to ask on, because one of the predictions of, me, of, of morphogenetic theory is that it's much more difficult to synthesize something that's never existed before than it is to synthesize something that already exists. This is a prediction. Have you noticed this in your own work? No, it's all I don't OK. So it, 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 it's, one of the, it's one of the predictions of Shell work. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Yes? That's
1: a very embarrassing registration. Could you define a mean
2: for me again? All right. Um, a mean is the basic unit of linguistic uh, capability that can be expressed and transmitted Alright. There's a there's a there's a good joke. Memes don't exist, tell everyone you know. Alright. Um huh? memes don't exist, tell everyone you know. Alright. That that gives you a, a sort of r- rough idea. Um, all of the major religions have are, are, are complexes of memes that work together, but one of the memes they all have in common is spread the word. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. One of the other means that most of them have in common is ours is the only true faith. Hinduism is the only religion that doesn't. Right. Okay. That Buddhism does not the same thing about it at all. Alright. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, I didn't hear
1: that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Hinduism uh, is not the one true faith. All yeah. yeah. the
2: other yeah. faith believes yeah. they are. They are the one true faith with the exception of Buddhism which just doesn't say anything about it. So. Yes.
1: Like,
2: the yeah. Well, I don't. I didn't say
1: church. Did I say? I don't think I say church. I mean, we played. Yeah. Yeah. Did I say church? Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really. Over I'd be really. Yeah, That's I know. I'd be really surprised that I, I used that kind yeah. of language, but. Uh, but forgive me if I did. I, I recant. I recant. I, I recant. Um, no, I, 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 I think I would have said community.
1: You said emerge. Yeah, sure. Oh, emerge. Okay. Oh, oh. Yes. Oh, I just wanted to, on the topic of games, so I wanted to recommend a book that I found to be really, really, really good called The Machine.
2: That's Susan Blackmore, what I was smoking dope with. Sure. Sorry. And I also wanted to
1: mention that you know, at least probable that she will be at the next Mind State Conference in Berkeley at the end of May of next
2: year. Excellent. And she's,
1: she's a firecracker. She is a firecracker. She's another person that has blown me away as far as speaker and also an incredible mind. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, you're looking to the building community as a group who's going to assist on looking at my notes to see if I uh transcriber properly. Uh to assist um in the new method of language slash communication um in order to um prepare uh for what's going to happen here in the next uh with the technology
2: yeah, I don't think. I mean, technology is one wave. There's three different. There's a linguistic wave. There's a technological wave. And there's a biological wave. And they're they're gonna collide and go
1: off. I, I meant this kaleidoscope. Okay. All right. Uh, would uh, non verbal communication be one of those areas? Because certainly with psychedelics, um, that's something that happens. Yeah. Um, this is, this
2: is where words begin to fail, this is, this is the problem, so when you start talking about nonverbal communication, what can you say about nonverbal communication, very hard. Um, I think that we need to aggressively explore techniques for communication, and it's funny because John and I are both in the technological field, and in fact we do, my, my work as a programmer has almost always been around tools for communication, building technological edifices for communication. Um, but there's, there's more than that, if you take a look at the work of someone like James Joyce, what did James Joyce do? He wrote a book, you know, he said at Finnegan's Wake that all of the world could be reconstructed from it, that he managed to sort of overload the language so thoroughly that you could, it almost like an algorithm, almost like a program, grow the world from that book. Um, I, I think that the very highest of art, and I mean, it, at some level, the psychedelic experience is the art experience. The highest of art is the ability to be able to bring new things into language, whether or not they're spoken, they're, they exist as, as, as linguistic artifacts. Um, I mean, I wish I could be uh, more fluid linguistically about that Terence was infinitely better at being able to talk than I am. Uh, but I think that that's, in some sense, got to be the grand project. And not really, it it was interesting because the Alchemical Arts Conference was, I think, the first time in modern history where we started to conceive of the idea of the psychedelic community as having a grand project, that there's really something that we should be doing, and that we should start to think about it that way, and that uh, we can take not not so much pride in it, but we can take sort of direction from it. and, And... and you, you want to be careful because you also don't want that to become a meme that then drives that all of thought of all of the certain things. You fall into that trap again, too. But you can start to conceive of your actions, both individually and within a community, as being able to contribute something to the world that we're all going to be creating.
1: Yes? Is there some sort of value hierarchy that you see... Um
2: emerging from this and it seems to me like the, the, the speed and is you know, And that's out, uh, of like or Right. Yeah. I, um when I was working on this talk, I talked I I gave a an initial version to the LA Futurist Society in three weeks ago. Um, in order to sort of help clarify some of my ideas, they did not get the, 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 the shotguns, the shotgun that you guys got. They got the, the pop gun. And one of the things that I said is we needed to be able to think about, uh, we needed to be able to move to reflection over reflexive activity. We needed to be able to find or create the interior space for that. And it's not clear. I, I cannot provide you any easy solution for how to provide interiority. Clearly spiritual practice, right? That is one of the goals of most spiritual practices is to provide a place for interiority. That is the aim of Zen practice. Right, right there. Stop the mind. Oh, look interior space. Right? Except you're not supposed to think, oh, look interior space you have to go back to the mind again. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, it, it's an odd thing because those are going to be constantly, uh, those forces are going to be constantly at war, and the question is, in the world when we finally get there, is that concept of interiority even going to be utterable? I don't know. I don't have. I wish I had a nice, good answer for that, and I don't have a clue.
1: Yes. I don't mean with us virus. Using um, falling into the crap hole, led led by eating all this seems just that how various evil know, um, things, you cannot restrict it in the way that you're constantly trying to get away from
2: human rights. Obviously, they're not entirely, okay? But trust me, it takes a mean to fly a plane into a building. Okay? And also, um, it also takes a mean to walk into a building on fire to save people. All right. So those engines are both works. So a means, good or bad, you've got to be so careful. All right. There are means that can evoke the higher self, and there are means that can evoke the shadow self. All right. And so, I mean, again, and this, is, this I mean, this calls for then an adoption of a process philosophy and a new evaluation the means. There's no formula that says this means good, this means bad. It's, how does this mean play itself out through time? How does it play itself in the body of someone who's a carrier, or the culture of someone who's a carrier? But this is, I think, going to be that's gonna be the big thing about Wolfram. I'm really excited about Wolfram because he's, he's giving us a model that is, I mean, you know, for 200 years after Newton, we conceived of everything as sort of clockwork, all right? Until Relativity came along and kicked it in the butt. But hospital physicists still do plenty of work, and that's how to make cars. Right. He's going to now do the same thing to the physical world with respect to process. He's given us that level of of tool.
1: Could it could,
2: be? Uh, is that me
1: that be like a uh, meta programmer and a seventh circuit and there
2: 8th circuit. It's it's not it, it it's not the meta programmer, it's the messages that are being carried by the meta programmer. So
1: Andrew? I wonder if uh this uh single atmosphere will its effect that right. as the rate of change increases, people look less and less able to cope. The faster the rate of progress is the units getting so not like through
2: this is, uh, this is in fact, what I was dealing with directly in the playful world. So the answer is no, because we're not the generation who's going to be the bearer of it. the children, and the children really only know a world of change, and so therefore they don't encounter stress. No, so, the emergence
1: of new novel psychiatric disorders like ADHD, is never even
2: before. ADHD, it? ADHD is probably an adaptation rather than a disorder. Although, it's, in severe cases, it's a disorder, in its mild cases, it's probably adaptation rather than a disorder. But it's <laughs> No, I, I agree with you, but that's what I'm saying. I think it may be adaptation. All right, I mean, you can make a number of different arguments. The, the thing of it is, is that the ability to both focus around something for a long period of time, which is something that we think of as characteristic of consciousness, is, it may very well be a phantom of a particular style of linguistic discourse. All right. I mean, it's very funny. There's a beautiful Simpsons episode where Bart is diagnosed with ADHD and mm-hmm. put on wonderful drugs. All right, And they're saying he can't concentrate. And Bart's sitting here playing a video game with 36,000 things going on at the same time. <laughs> and they're making this point very subtly. It's that um, ADHD is probably overdiagnosed. There are clearly people who cannot concentrate. And for them, it presents an insurmountable block. But there may be a broader set of children who, in fact, want to work in a discreetly smaller units, but the culture hasn't caught up to the fact that they can, they, they want to be able to do this yet. Um, so it's a very it's a very weird ground. You're right, there's a certain degree of mental illness there because some people maybe maybe they're simply too far ahead of where we are now. But I think for a lot of children the adaptation has simply focused them very differently. One of the conclusions that I make at the end of the playful world is that children are now creating a new language. Because of their interactions in this environment, and this language is not going to be something we're going to be familiar with. And I'm now starting—it's actually interesting to make this point because we're starting to get the sense that this language is more than just linguistic; it has to do with how their consciousness is focused. All right, and so that we see this as a disease, where they just see this as a way of being able to be embodied in a world that is moving so very quickly. Um, and so we're treating them as if they were diseased. Although they may or may not be, they may in fact be better able to cope in a faster
0: world. It's hard to know where to begin after listening to one of Mark's presentations. And so I'll just uh, mention one thought that struck me when he was talking about our DNA having access to a large number of multiple universes. And that is the uh, quote of J.B.S. Haldane that Terence used in our previous podcast. And uh, it goes something like, The universe may not only be stranger than we suppose, it may be stranger than we can suppose. And uh, whenever I get a chance to listen to one of Mark's talks, uh, that quote really hits home with me. Early in this talk, uh, we heard Mark mention Ray Kurzweil's in his his book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, which is a really interesting book, by the way. Subsequent to the talk we just heard, uh, Kurzweil published another book titled, The Singularity is Near. When Humans Transcend Biology, and uh, it caused quite a stir when it first came out about a year ago. Well, uh, just before it was published, uh, Mark gave a presentation at one of our Planque Norte lectures at Burning Man, where he talked about Kurzweil and Werner Vingy, the man who first developed the concept of a technological singularity, and uh, Mark told the story that at a recent meeting he had with Werner Vinge that Vinji had called Mark a gradualist because uh, he wasn't on board with the idea of an almost instantaneous transformation when uh, or if the singularity was reached. Well, uh, last spring, my friend Matteo, who you know as Matt Palomary from previous podcasts, invited me to a dinner he was having with Werner Vinji, who is a friend of his. And while we were waiting for our meals to arrive, uh, we were discussing, among other things his ideas about a possible singularity, and uh, of course, Ray Kurzweil's new book came up. And during the conversation, I happened to mention Mark's story about being called a gradualist, and without missing a beat, uh, Vinci turned to me and said, next to me, Kurzweil is also a gradualist. And for our fellow Saloners who are into these things, uh, well, that should uh, really make the hair stand up on the back of your neck for sure. Personally, uh, I'm in Mark's camp on this, and fervently hope that us gradualists are correct. But then, uh, if Vinji is on target here, well, uh, there's really not very much any of us can do about it, except uh, sit back and enjoy the ride. Now, if you resonated with some of the ideas that uh, Mark presented today, my suggestion is that you read some of the books he referenced, and uh, I'll try to remember to put links to them with the program notes for this page. And uh, don't think that you have to be a rocket scientist to handle them. Perhaps the most revolutionary uh, book that Mark mentions is uh, Stephen Wolfram's A New Kind of Science. And I agree with Mark that uh, Wolfram ranks right up there with Newton. Like uh, thousands of others, I got a copy of that book as soon as it was published and eagerly began reading. Initially, I was surprised at how accessible it was, and I still think that. But it still took me over three years to finish it. And uh, today I doubt if I can explain what I read, other than to uh, have a grokking that he was really on to something that will be worth my time to dig into again and again and again until I kind of understand it. I guess you could say it's a psychedelic science book. Well worth the time if you're so inclined. And before I forget it, if you go to markpesci.com, that's M-A-R-K-P-E-S-C-E dot com, You'll uh, find many of Mark's other presentations, uh, both in audio and video formats, as well as links to his other websites and uh, many of his fascinating essays. And I think you'll be amazed at the wide range of topics he covers. Mark has some brain candy for almost any taste. Uh, So surf on over to markpesci.com, and I'm sure you'll be well rewarded for your time. Now, before I get to a couple of other things I want to point you to, I uh, want to give a shout-out to our fellow salonners in Iceland, China, Norway, Japan, Sweden, Turkey, Singapore, Kuwait, and New Zealand, home of David M., who says, The psychedelic scene is alive and well down here in the form of music and the local homegrown. And uh, he went on to invite me to stop by for a cup of coffee if I'm ever in the area. Well, thanks for the invite, David, and I promise to do just that should I ever find myself down your way. Now, why do I point out these particular countries just now, you ask? Well, right at this very moment, uh, those are just a few of the countries that are showing up as having someone in the process of downloading one of our podcasts. While a lot of our fellow saloners live in North America and Europe, I want to point out the fact that the community of people who share our interests is uh, worldwide. There is quite literally no corner of this planet where you can't find a psychedelically oriented person. Find the others. That's what Terence McKenna's mantra was. Now, I don't know how to tell you to do this in your own neck of the woods, but what I can tell you is that the woods are full of people like you and me. So, uh, even if you're lonely right now, uh, have comfort in the fact that you are not alone. Each day I notice uh, that more of our fellow sloners are stopping by our notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog at psychedelicsalon.org, where I post the program notes for these podcasts. And if you've been visiting that site for a while, you may have noticed that I've stopped using Google Ads on it because of uh, my concern that there may be some tracking going on by their advertising programs. And I want to keep the site as anonymous and clean as possible. As I've said before, this is a listener-supported program, and uh, even those little Google Ads now seem uh, kind of intrusive to me. So I don't want you to think that I've changed my mind about advertising on the site when uh, in a few days you see links to two websites that are run by a couple of friends of mine. Just so you know, these are uh, not commercial advertisements, but uh, rather endorsements by me of these sites. I'm not receiving any financial compensation from either of them, although they've both been supporting the salon by spreading the word about these podcasts. And my guess is that uh, quite a few of our fellow saloners found their way here through those sites. And for that, I am very appreciative. The sites that I'm uh, linking to are Daniel Siebert's sagewisdom.com and EROC X1's Guy and Botanicals. Daniel, uh, in my humble opinion, is the world's leading expert on salvia divinorum, and you'll remember him from our podcast number 81. EROC, X1's site, covers a wider range of plants, herbs, and teas, uh, including my favorite bedtime beverage, which he calls Hypnosis Tea Blend. And by the way, uh, all of the products on both of these sites are perfectly legal, uh, except for salvia, which uh, now has been banned in a few countries and a few states in the U.S. As for the uh, other items that you'll find at uh, Guyan Botanicals, EROC X1 says, I don't buy from the mega distributors who exploit the natives and their ecosystem." I have a very tight network of honorable people who help me procure my botanicals from ethical sources, and I'm growing this network all of the time. So if you're uh, looking for plants and herbs that aren't available in your local market, you might want to take a look at these sites when you get a chance. And uh, speaking of sites to check out, uh, thanks to Little Elf, x one and uh, the comments from MySpacers, whose handles are Shaman's Path, Vivian. Syrian Shaman, I think I said that right, Uh, C-I-A-R-A-N, Syrian Shaman, cool name, Vote Ron Paul, Philocybin, Nick, Love, Shroom, Amethstar, and God's Food. Well, we now have an active MySpace site. I'm only beginning to uh, get up to speed on MySpace myself, and so I'm a real novice here, but uh, already we've got 125 friends, which uh, seems quite spectacular to me. So, uh, if you're also a MySpacer, well, uh, I'd be more than happy to see you pop up in that friend column, too. While I don't have time to respond to each of you, uh, I do surf over to your MySpace pages to get to know you a little better, and uh, that's been a real pleasure for me. Now, I don't have time to go into all the postings that have already popped up and appeared on our MySpace page, but uh, there's one that I would like to point out right now, and that came from Shaman's Path, who said, I'm excited to let you know that my new book, Sage Spirit, Salvia Divinorum and the Entheogenic Experience, and the accompanying music CD, Divinorum, are now available at martinball.net. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-B-A-L-L dot net and lulu.com, L-U-L-U dot com. And he included a little blurb about the book from Daniel Siebert, who says, This is a book that truly contains much sage wisdom. Dr. Ball regards salvia divinorum as a sacred herb and treats it with tremendous respect. He describes many of his personal experiences, shares meaningful insights, and provides helpful advice on using this herb as a tool for cultivating practical spirituality. Sage spirit should be read by all who seek to understand the nature of Salvia Divinorum, especially as it relates to human consciousness, personal growth, and spiritual development. And since uh, I consider Daniel Siebert to be the leading expert on this subject, uh, well, I can think of no higher praise. I know that a lot of our fellow slaughters who also listen to Dope Fiend and Max Freakout are really into salvia, and so you might want to get this book to further your understanding of this important plant. I seem to be going on here uh, longer than usual, but uh, so many of you have written to say that you don't mind these sometime long comments by me, Oh, I'm no longer worried about it. In fact, uh, while I can't remember your name, I can still see the face of one of our fellow saloners who rode all the way out to the back edge of Black Rock City last August just to uh, encourage me to do a little more talking. So uh, thanks for the encouragement, everyone. It's uh, very heartening indeed. There is one last item I'd like to cover today, and uh, that's the topic of the other podcasts that I listen to on a regular basis. Some of them you already know about, and uh, some of them I haven't mentioned before. To begin with, uh, I highly recommend KMO's Sea Realm Podcast. It was uh, KMO, by the way, who got me out of my own little cocoon and started me listening to a whole bunch of other programs thanks for that, KMO. Uh, you truly opened my ears to a whole new world of information and entertainment. And, uh, and if you haven't heard one of his interviews in the Sea Realm, uh, well, you don't know what you're missing. Now, uh, if you're looking for something a little different, uh, my friend Tom Barbelay does a couple podcasts that uh, will take you on some really interesting mental adventures. For those of you who share my interest in the topic of artificial life... Well, you may want to check out Tom's Biota podcast where he interviews artificial life developers. And if you're into second life, this uh, might be a program you'll really resonate with. And I'll put uh, links to all of these podcasts that I'm mentioning here uh, under the links section in the right sidebar on our psychedelicsalon.org blog. The other podcast Tom does is called Ape Reality and uh, it'll really blow you away if you happen to be a philosophical geek who wants to experiment with some truly amazing software called Noble Ape that Tom developed. And in this podcast, Tom uh, discusses aspects of the development and philosophy of the artificial life community. Another podcast I've been meaning to mention for quite a while now is uh, Dr. Dave's very cleverly named Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap is two words, by the way. Get it? (laughs) Very clever, Dave. Since we've uh, talked a lot about synchronicity here in the salon, uh, maybe a good place to start with Dr. Dave's show might be his episode number 75, which is titled A New Theory of Synchronicity. And I guess I don't even need to mention this, but uh, both Tom and Dr. Dave are also fellow Saloners, So uh, they're family, so to speak. And uh, while I've probably talked about the programs on the Cannabis Podcast Network until you're tired of hearing about them, I uh, I still want to mention them one more time, just to be sure that you don't miss these wonderful podcasts, which uh, all can be found at dopetheme.co.uk. That's D-O-P-E-F-I-E-N-D dot C-O dot U-K. You know, for uh, pure joy and entertainment, there's uh, Lefty's Lounge, where I stop by for a visit from time to time, and the all-new BB's Bungalow, hosted from down under by the lovely Black Beauty. And, of course, uh, The Sounds of Worldwide Weed, hosted by my dear friend, Queer Ninja. In addition to those three podcasts, the network is also home to what I consider to be the three most important information-oriented podcasts about our sacred medicines that you'll find. There's the Grow Report, hosted by Zandor and Mrs. Zandor. And uh, while it's primarily aimed at the medical marijuana growing community, they also provide us with a lot of news and information that's uh, of interest to the psychedelic community at large. Next is Psychonautica, hosted by the one and only Max Freakout. There, uh, you'll hear a world of information about psychedelic medicines, their uses, preparations, and safety tips, uh, along with some pretty amazing stories and some great interviews. And uh, in full disclosure here, uh, <laughs> I've been a guest on Psychonautica myself, so I guess this is also a little self-promotion on my part. And then there's the cornerstone of the network, and that's the Dopecast, hosted by DopeFiend. And hey, Dope Fiend, uh, my hearty congratulations on your recent 100th podcast from the Dope Den somewhere in London. I know what a tremendous effort it takes to produce that many podcasts, as I'm sure Dr. Dave does, who's actually produced more podcasts than either one of us have. It's, uh, it's an accomplishment that you can rightly be very proud of, and on behalf of all of our fellow saloners, we salute you. Now, I'd like to say one more thing about these last three podcasts, just to let you know how highly I value them. As you've heard me say on several occasions... One of the reasons I'm producing the Psychedelic Salon podcast is so that my grandchildren and their children will have access to this information once I'm no longer around. But my podcasts uh, have mostly to do with the thinking that comes out of some of the experiences people have with uh, psychoactive substances. However, when it comes to educating uh, people about the details of using our sacred medicines... I've learned that information coming from family members and older people is uh, often not paid much attention. And so I've been archiving the Girl Report, Psychonautica, and the DopeCast on CDs in the hope that uh, one day my grandchildren will find them and listen to them closely. I'm not positive about this, but uh, I think that at least Dope Fiend and Max Freakout are still under 30 years old or at least not much older than that. And uh, having come of age during the 60s, I clearly remember our mantra that you shouldn't trust anyone over 30. And to a large extent, uh, well, I still believe that. My, uh, My point here is that I'm willing to trust the drug education of my grandchildren to these wonderful people. And I can't think of a higher recommendation than that. Almost without exception, they give the same advice I would. So thank you all for doing what you do. While your efforts may not be rewarded financially, you're uh, certainly building some incredibly good karma. And I love you all. Well, that's about it for today. Uh, But before I go, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just click the link on the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage that says Creative Commons. Which uh, may be found at psychedelicslawn.org. And if you have any questions, comments, complaints, or suggestions about these podcasts, well, uh, just send them to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.